Hi, this is Elliot, host of Inspired Edinburgh. Please come and check out our Facebook page for all of the latest updates. If I could ask a small favour, please could you subscribe and review our show on iTunes. By doing this, you'll be helping us reach a wider audience and have a greater impact by challenging perceptions and encouraging people to live a more conscious life. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves, and my guest today is Mark Cooper. Mark is an Edinburgh-based motivational speaker, ultra-runner, expedition consultant, and fundraiser. You originally took up running in 2007 to stop smoking and have since competed in countless events. In 2010, you completed an expedition across Europe where you ran 50 marathons in 56 days from Amsterdam to Barcelona in memory of your mum and raised over £30,000 for the Edinburgh Headway Group. You were subsequently awarded the Inspiration Award from from JOG uh, Scotland and received letters of support from ex-Prime Minister Gordon Brown and former SNP leader Alex Ammond. Mark, it's absolutely incredible to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Elliot. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you here. Um, I've wanted to have a conversation with you for a while. It's been on my list and I'm glad that we finally made it happen. It's great, yeah. (laughs) Excellent. So you are a, a fellow Edinburgher. What was growing up in Edinburgh like for you? It was great. I lived just near Portobello. So um, actually, it's something I love being near the sea. It's never left me. So mm-hmm. um, we stayed in, in Mountcastle area. Um, I had a great childhood, yeah. One brother, Alan, um, our, my grandparents and my, my aunt lived in Portobello as well. So we were always together. And a big tight group of friends around there as well. So Yeah, good stuff. How would you... I suppose, describe what you were like growing up. What were you like as a person? Um, full of beans, to be <laughs> honest. I was always, a lot of people say, not just about me, but about themselves, but I was always the kind of person in the, the report card would say, you know, class clown. <laughs> always tries to make people laugh. And then when I, that was in primary school, and then when I got to high school, I think you generally change when you get to that age. Um, and most people do anyway. And I went a little bit quiet, but I was always had a really solid group of friends around me. Mm-hmm. And we're still all friends to this day as well. So, hmm. When you were young, what did you see yourself doing when you were older, when you were an adult? Um, from about the age of about 10 until maybe about 15, 16, I wanted to be a chef. Really? Yeah. Always cooked with my mum in the kitchen. It was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like my happiest memories. Um, and my brother actually went to catering college as well. So that kind of made me think, oh, that's something that I'd love to do. And mm-hmm. I never pursued it, but I, you know, I still do all the cooking at home. So, <laughs> yeah, good stuff, good stuff. What was your, I suppose, like your career journey um, before you originally started running? What, what did you get yourself into at that point? Well, so my mum passed away when I was fourteen, mm-hmm. um, and obviously I was just going to exam times at that, when that happened, um, and it was during the summer holidays. I was off school and I was going back to exams that year, um, but obviously that was the one of the furthest things from my mind at that point mm-hmm. so I just cruised for the exams to be honest and school wasn't a list of my priorities I just was, didn't, could care less about it to be honest yeah and um, I did stay on until sixth year really just coasting and have a good time with my friends that kind of thing mm-hmm. didn't get any hires um, but I wasn't really concerned um, and then I left school landed in a job in a law firm um, which was a good enough job for my age but in the role that I was uh, pursuing, it was there was not much development or any promotion to be had, and no career certainly. Anyway, it was what you'd call a dead end job, I guess. Yeah, 
Looking back um, on the sort of earlier time in your life, what impact do you think that losing your mother actually had on you as a person? Um, at the time, probably not too much at the time. It was more later on. Okay. Um, so at the time, you're young, you know, you're kind of a bit confused, you don't really appreciate what's actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it sinks in a little bit and you kind of, I didn't go off the rails really, but I'd kind of lost interest in a lot of things that I perhaps was before. Um, so at that age, you kind of start going out with your friends, going down the park, having a few drinks, mm-hmm. and that was really what I spent my time doing most weekends, just going out with my friends and drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's maybe not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really more when I got into my early 20s, actually, so a few years afterwards, and I started to think, do you know, actually, I don't feel like I'm doing anything with my life here. And actually, nobody's going to help me do that. I need to do this for myself. Um, so that's really the decision I came to. That I needed to do something urgent. Yeah, yeah, and you did. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. When did you? When did you first start smoking? Sixteen. Was it? Yeah, it was actually. Um, it was a girl's fault. Um, <laughs> so my then girlfriend Heather, if she's watching this, um, she used to. Uh, she used to sneak around the side of our mum and dad's, and she'd have a cigarette because she didn't know she smoked. And one day I says, oh, let me try one. And that was that. You know, I used to hang at the back of the school gates. And uh, it was really bizarre because it's, my mum my actually smoked. And my dad always hated it. And we always hated it, me and my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really strange for me to, for, for me to do. Um, but no, I smoked for, smoked for about 10 years, I'd say. Really? Maybe more. No, eight years, eight years. Yeah. Okay. And I've got to be honest, I did enjoy it at first. Yeah. I did enjoy it at first. Um, but yeah, I mean... Again, one of the best things I ever did was stopping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what was the trigger? What when did you decide that actually this habit's not serving me? I, I want to well, change. I think it was a collection of things. I, I was I used to work in a solicitor's uh, firm, and they were on the North Castle Street. And you know, there's some of the new town houses. They've got the downstairs sort of outside area. Mm-hmm. You, that's where you had the cigarette break. Okay. And I was standing there one day. And I was hungover. And I felt terrible. It was bucket my rain, and I just thought I was smoking a cigarette. And I just thought to myself, "What are you doing? You know, this is never mind the smoking. That was bad enough. But it was more the what are you doing with your life here? You know, I felt like I'd just gone down this river, came at these forks, made no decision, just went with the flow the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what I was wanting to do in my life. And one of the things I thought, what can I do right now? What can I do right now for myself? I says, why don't you stop smoking and just go for a run the next day? And that's what happened. So, <laughs> And it felt different at that time. I'd said I'd try and stop smoking before and do something different with my life. But when I, when, I, when I thought about it this time, it just felt different. It felt like this isn't me. This isn't a wish. It's actually a plan. Okay. Kind of an existential crisis moment. Yeah. What am I doing with my life? Yeah. <laughs> what's what's yeah. the first thing I can change here? Yeah, what's the easy thing? Well, I can put this out of <laughs> my hand and yeah. stub that out and never do it again. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. How, how long was it before you went back to smoking um, so I was quite um, man, I never, so that was I'd tried to stop three times before that okay. never seriously if I'm on, in all honesty mm-hmm. but it just so happened at this point when I stopped the smoking ban came in as well in the pubs and it really helped because yeah. I didn't have to be around any of that anymore Yeah. Um, so I never actually had to have a cigarette again um, wow yeah it was um, but it felt I don't know I wouldn't say easy but it did feel a lot easier this time because I just made up my mind, mm-hmm. you know, and I wasn't, there are times I think I was just, you know, kidding myself. <laughs> but this time, I think it's really weird because sometimes you can make decisions 
and if you're dead set in them, they're easy to carry out no matter how difficult they seem. Yeah, yeah. What's your identity relative to smoking these days? I, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, right. I don't want someone sitting next to me while I eat my food. But <laughs> I understand why people would smoke, because I did it once, you know. So I'm yeah. not like the smoking police or anything like that. No, you know, no. Like friends that smoke, it's absolutely fine. It's freedom of choice, so. Yeah. And is, do you consider yourself absolutely a non-smoker now, then? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. I'm 10 years smoke-free this year. Wow. Yeah. Good going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would have thought I'd say that at some point years ago, but. Yeah. yeah. So your, your first run wasn't um, across the whole of Europe. It was more, uh, what was it, 200 yards? Yeah, it was around the Figgit Park. <laughs> All um, right, okay. Yeah, around the Figgit Park. Um, so just next to where I, you know, I live with my dad and just next to his house was the park and I thought, I'll go and run around this park. Oh, I felt dreadful. I mean, I barely made it a couple of hundred yards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to have that cigarette and things like that, but I didn't. And then it was interesting because I just stuck with it every day. Got a bit farther, got a bit further and eventually made it around the park. It was only a mile. And when I think about that now, I mean, it's... Crazy to think I couldn't run a mile, um, but you've got to start somewhere, like everybody. Yeah. And um, I signed up for a race, which was a ten-kilometer race in Edinburgh, and that felt huge to me. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it is a big deal to mm-hmm. me. It doesn't feel like a big deal now, but then <laughs> it was like, oh my goodness, ten kilometers. How am I going to do this? Um, and finishing that race and beating the time that I wanted, which was an hour, I got fifty-five minutes. Um, actually, because I didn't take school seriously because I'd kind of coasted most of my life that, mm-hmm. that part of my life anyway and career and everything like that finishing that race was probably like the first time I thought you've actually set yourself a goal and you've not just met your goal you've exceeded your expectations and everybody else's because mm-hmm. nobody gave me a shot of doing it mm-hmm. and actually I liked that as well so mm-hmm. so was that like your first taste of sort of success yeah yeah, yeah. I'd say so yeah 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 and and what then happened from there? How did it continue? Well, I'd, I'd done all the training with my friend Peter, um, and he said, that's enough for me. So I just carried on myself. But it wasn't just, you know, I felt started becoming physically better. Mm-hmm. You know, I was stuck around my friends, having a good time. I was a young man. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you've got to still do things in your life to enjoy yourself. But um, I felt differently about how I viewed life and about how I viewed work and other people. And... Um, I did things that I thought are going to be good for me rather than just what I think people may expect of me. Um, so I bought a bike. I got ridiculed for buying a bike. You know, it seems silly, <laughs> but, but nobody else that I knew or friends were like, what are you buying a bike for? I was like, I'm going to cycle to work and I got laughed at. So it was a lot of things like that before I would have like, oh, no, they're right, I shouldn't get that bike. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, no, this is something that is going to be good for me. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started. I started cycling to work. And then um, me and my friend Matthew cycled the length of Britain. That's and right, that was the yeah. next thing in 2009, yeah. um, which again was just crazy. We were not prepared. We, we didn't have any accommodation. We didn't plan a route. We just said, let's just go. We think we start at Land's End and we'll find our way. But I mean, it depends what kind of person you are, but I kind of like that not being prepared, you know, not, I don't, for me, that being totally prepared, having a, having a big crew, having all this stuff planned, accommodation booked in, that takes away from the adventure for me and the, sense of challenge and accomplishment so mm-hmm. um hmm. so yeah nice how long did that take you well we planned for 12 days it took 11 okay um unfortunately matt um, who i used to work with uh, he got injured on the second day um so his knee was really bad um and we were just out we just um got to um i can't remember now somewhere down in england anyway mm-hmm. um big university town 
um, and he said, that's it, I can't cycle, I can't go on, it's the second day, and um, it, it was Bristol, and, and he said, I'm going to have to go home, I'm sorry, so he left me and got the got a flight, he left his bike chained outside the hotel, and I thought, well, I'm just going to have to do this myself now, um, and I went to bed thinking, right, well, I'll have to get on tomorrow and just do it, and I woke up and he'd driven back down from Lillifco where he lived, all the way down to, all the way down to Bristol, and said, I'll support you up the country. Whoa. It just still touches me now, actually, thinking about that, because yeah. he was so disappointed at the fact that his trip was over, mm. and he thought, I don't want to miss this, you know, I've trained for this, and I can still play a part. Um, and it's really kind of quite amazing. Yeah, that. that's brilliant. So we did it 11 days, um, and at the end, at the end, actually, Matt had the cheek to say, I'm never doing anything like this again, and I thought, you've just sat in a car eating crisps and chocolate. That's <laughs> kind of what I mean. <laughs> but, and I say it's not me neither, but actually I knew, even when I said that, I thought, I don't believe that actually because I just felt I, I just loved it you know it was brutal mm-hmm. um, I mean I know thousands of people do it every year there's hundreds of thousands of people do a 10k it just depends what your 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 your, um, your aims are but um, yeah I loved that I loved the fact that it was brutal and it <laughs> was horrible at times And what is it about pushing yourself that you enjoy? I don't know I don't know I think it I don't feel like I don't feel like I've got anything to prove to myself or to anyone else. I don't feel like... Funny, I have a colleague who's left work now um, and said, oh, I just run all the time. And she was like, maybe it'd be better if you just stopped and just cleared your mind for a bit and stopped for a minute and sat still. And I was thinking, but you don't get it. I'm not, I'm not running away from anything. This is, this is how I find my stillness, mm. by doing these things. You know, that's when I feel most comfortable. In the middle of the mountains in Scotland pouring rain, 20 miles to run, and that's where I feel most like, this is my zen, do you know what I mean? This is my yeah, mindfulness. Yeah. Um, so I think it's part of that as well, yeah. That's really cool. Love that. <laughs> so where did the idea to run um, a, a kind of across Europe come from then? Um, so I don't, because my passing away um, was so sudden, I hadn't really ever given any thought to raising any money or do, turning that into a positive because I think you can turn any negative into something that's positive. But I never had the kind of, I never had any desire or motivation to do anything significant enough to kind of mark that um, thing that happened in my life. Um, and I thought, well, now I feel like I'm in relatively good shape. I wasn't the fittest guy in the world, but I wasn't that unfit. And mm-hmm. I thought, you could do something here. Um, we'd raised a lot of money for the Make-A-Wish Foundation um, on the cycle. Um, I mean, like £3,000 or something. And I thought we could do a lot more. I could do a lot more than that. Um, and running was my my love at this point. The cycle was because Matt wanted to do it, and he didn't run. He cycled. Hmm. And so I said, "Well, let's do a cycle." But if I was going to do something myself, it was going to be um, running. Um, and I thought about running in the UK, but I just thought well, I've just cycled it. it. Seems a bit silly, and I want to go and see something new. Um, so uh, my dad had said, "If you're going to do something for a charity, you should do it for the Edinburgh Headway Group because they helped me when your mum passed away." And I never oh, knew that. Right. Um, and, and it's a fantastic uh, organisation up at the Astley Hospital, Hospital, um, just helping people with acquire brain injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just basically, they only spoke to my dad on the phone a couple of times, but they gave him some advice that really helped him to kind of understand what had happened and oh, some right. coping things. And I didn't know that at all, but um, he said, you should do it for them. And of course I thought, well, there's nobody else. I didn't have any charity. I thought, no, I want to do it for this charity. And my dad said that. I thought, well, I'll have to do it for them. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for Amsterdam to Barcelona, well, Barcelona, just outside Barcelona, there was a little um, 
the village, and that was one of the last places. That was the last place we went on holiday as a family together. Um, so I thought Barcelona would be quite an incredible place to finish as well. Yeah. The Plaza de Catalunya and uh, Amsterdam, mainly because actually we can get the ferry over to Amsterdam. Um, but but one of the big reasons was my now wife, who was my then brand new girlfriend, actually our first date. Um, I don't know for years, but we went on our first date on the 18th of September 2009. I think that's right. <laughs> and on the 19th of September 2009, the day after, I decided I was going to do this. I was going to do a run. And the original plan was my, actually my friend, Rona, was a teacher and she was there in Murcia. And she's my best friend. And, and I said, oh, I'm going to run around the coast of Spain and I'll run to Murcia. That's what I'll do. And I'll spend a couple of weeks with you in there. Um, and then I thought, just doesn't feel right. And then long story short, she came back to Edinburgh, wasn't settled in Mercia. But I said to Farrell, the day after our first date, I'm going to do this big run across Europe, like 1,000 miles or something. And she, and this is when I knew she was the one for me because she didn't say, oh, you're mad. She went, oh, can I help? <laughs> and she actually found a route that was online that existed for cyclists. And it was Amsterdam to Barcelona. Fantastic guy from, from the Netherlands who's got routes all across Europe. Mm. I mean, it's incredible. I got Paul Benjamin's. It's amazing. And uh, it was all in Dutch. But he said, here's the maps, sent me them. I got a woman who lived in Eindhoven who translated them all into English. Really? And so I could follow all the directions. But I had a list of B&Bs, campsites, everything, landmarks. Um, and when I seen that, I thought, well, that, that feels like I'm going to have to do it now. Mm. Um, and I got the total distance, which was 1,311 miles. And I divided, I said a marathon a day seems achievable. Um, I'd never run one at this point. Um, divided it by marathon and thought, what's 50 marathons plus one spare mile? That's what was left in the spare mile. I'll tell you a bit later. But, um, and the reason it was 56 days was because when I did the cycle, I, I could do it on a cycle unsupported, but the run, I thought, can I do it unsupported? Looking back now, I wish I probably had done it unsupported. Mm-hmm. And when I say supported, I had one friend who wasn't a qualified masseuse or anything like that. They were just there just to kind of, at the end, where are we going to stay today? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, it's six miles to the nearest town, we're going to have to go or find the nearest campsite or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the six, the six, it was eight weeks I was away. The six days, um, there should have been eight people, but fair left my wife. She covered uh, three weeks, the first week and the last two weeks. And then friends and even strangers covered the weeks in between. Really? Yeah, a couple of <laughs> now friends, but strangers then. Um, heard what you're doing for a friend love to do that and for me I'm kind of I'm quite an introvert person well my friends wouldn't think that mm-hmm. but in in certain situations I'll be like oh, I'll just shy for the conversation um, so for me to think I'm going to send a week with someone I don't know I'm shattered I'm running but it turned out to be amazing hmm. I'm getting ahead of myself a bit here um, but that's how it came about really Um and I thought, what a cool place to start Amsterdam and finish in Barcelona. Yeah. And go through the whole of France and the Pyrenees and all that kind of thing. Oh, wow. And i am not be able to touch a single drop of wine. I didn't drink for nine months. Seriously? Yeah. yeah. Wow. I think I had about, I think I had one night out in about nine months. And being in a band, that was hard because, you know, you play gigs and I'd be like, right, yeah. see you guys. We went to Newcastle for a gig and um, I played the gig. And I was like, right, I'll see you later. I'm going back to, I'm going back to the hotel and going for a run in the morning. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Because they're all just like, what is wrong with him? <laughs> um, so yeah, it was quite an achievement. But going through France and not having any wine was was tricky. So. Yeah, yeah. So how did you go about training and preparing for something like that? Yeah, I mean, I'd never, I'd never run a marathon at this point. 
But that was part of the attraction. And also <laughs> I thought, if I'm going to raise a lot of money, I need to do something that people are going to go, you're doing what? Mm-hmm. If I'd said I'm going to run one marathon, I'm going to raise some money. But nowhere near what I wanted to for the organisation. Because a small organisation, you know, the money that we raised goes a long way there. Um, so I wanted to make a real difference to the to the, the charity. Um, but I also wanted to go on this big adventure. You know, I could do a marathon. It's a great, it's an adventure. It's, it's an incredible achievement. But I wanted to go on a big super adventure across Europe. So, um, but I knew I had to be, you know, really physically in a great, in a great, great shape. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was September 2009 and it was May the 1st, 2010. It was the first day I ran the marathon, the first day. Um, I didn't, I, I mean, looking back, people would tell me that, people would tell you that my approach to this was just, how did you not get injured and this is just stupid. <laughs> but I, I really think, Things like training and physical fitness, it's really down, a lot of it's down to not just like an individual, but your mindset as well. Massively, yeah. You know? I mean, for, I'm not kidding, for nine months, every, every, and thankfully I had a job at that point that allowed me to do this, but every minute of every day, all I thought about was how good will it be when you get to Barcelona? How good will it be when you get there? I'm not kidding, I was obsessed. And every run, I'd be like, oh, I've done 20 miles. Do you know what I mean? Because I just would be in this zone. Yeah. And it didn't mean it wasn't hard. It was hard to do all this training. but And it was the coldest winter in Scotland for 100 years, that winter as well. But it was all just character building for me. Mm-hmm. I just thought, you're going to go out in that. You know, south of France is going to be a doddle, even though it's 40 degrees hotter than it was here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was all character building. And um, it, basically what it consisted of was um, you know, running every single day, so no days off. Um, probably about during the week, maybe like 10 miles every single day, marathon every Sunday. Um, and I say the marathon on a Sunday, I mean, I, I was taking it easy. I wasn't, you know, I was like, I've got to do a marathon today. I've got six hours to do it. I can stop, have some lunch. I wasn't putting too much pressure on myself because it was just about getting miles in the legs and that kind of thing. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. training for a sub three hour marathon. I was training for endurance. Yeah. So it didn't have to be so intense. Um, I don't remember being tired. I honestly don't. But I think, again, that was just down to the mindset. It was so determined and so bloody-minded that I didn't really feel that kind of side of it. Um, and I have to say, I mean, the body's incredible. Hmm. I mean, from going from... I was in all right shape. I wasn't, like, that fit. You know what I mean? But to go from September to May and the difference in that period of time, you know, that's when people come and talk to me sometimes about, I want to get fit. And I say, in six months, you could be in the best shape of your life. I'm not kidding. Do you know what I mean? You could be. Mm-hmm. People don't believe you, though. <laughs> and, and that's a testament. You know, nine months and I totally transformed. I didn't have a six-pack of that, unfortunately. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have to eat the right things for that. But <laughs> my fitness, overall, I was the fittest I'd ever been in my life. Yeah. Um, and when we raised a lot of money, but we did some cool things as well. So um, I was doing these marathons on a Sunday. And let's be honest, that is a massive achievement doing a marathon for anyone. Um so we decided to set up treadmills in shopping centres and just do marathons on treadmills. <laughs> so I did one in Cameron Toll, St James's Centre and um, Waverley uh, Centre. Seriously? Uh, yeah, so we did a marathon in each one and then, um, you know, raised about £1,200 or something like in each one, um, which was great and it raised loads of awareness. And yeah. this is what I mean about fate, <laughs> that everything's worth doing, right? Because I remember running and this uh, lady came up to me and she said, oh, tell me about this. She's an English lady. I said, oh, I'm doing this marathon. She goes, oh, my name's Julia. Um, I, I actually ran in the 86 
Commonwealth Games at Meadowbank in Edinburgh. I think it was 86. And she said, I ran the marathon. And actually, I write for Running Free magazine. And I do a podcast. And I was like, all oh, right. She says, well, I'll interview you one time. And so I was like, all right, cool. So we did this interview. And she said, um, she said, oh, the podcast out here. And I was like, just out of curiosity, do you know how many downloads she gets? She was like, like a dozen or something, right? And I was like, oh, a dozen, right? But one of her friends, one of the people who listened to the podcast, um, had a reason to, to be sympathetic towards the charity. But she loved what I was doing. And, she, and one day I was... I was on my run and I, you know, just giving, you get a notification saying that you've had a donation. Mm-hmm. It was near the end and it said someone's donated £8,000. And I was like, I've got to be a mistake. You know, they must have put the decimal point in the wrong place. And I had an email from this lady who I'd never met saying, um, all the best for your last few days. You know, I've made a donation for your charity. I hope it helps get you over the line because I'd set a target at 25 grand. And um, I emailed her and I was like, sorry, but do you mean like, Eighty pounds or something. She was like, "No, eight thousand pounds for the Adam Hedwig Group," and it's because she heard that podcast. Oh so it's my just like fate. God. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Again, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but yeah. <laughs> not at all. No, no, it's brilliant. Absolutely awesome. Cool. So, when did you uh, when did you kind of set off for this journey? And after the first few days, did you ever have any doubts creep in? Were you kind of like, "What have I actually got myself into here?" Yeah, I, I, I mean. <laughs> Because it's easy to sit here now and go once all of you feel great and you've moved on and think, wasn't that hard? That actually, I guess that's part of the attraction. That's why people like they do these races and ultra marathons. They at the time they go never again, never again, and then about two weeks later they're like, oh, I fancy that race. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> um, so I'd managed to stay injury free. I was in a great place mentally, physically. You know, I had my support crew. I was all set, and we went. Me and Farlaf, my my girlfriend then wife now. We um we got the ferry um from Newcastle to Amsterdam and set off and I was so excited. It was Queen's Day when I got to Amsterdam, so it's like the biggest celebration yeah. in the Netherlands. <laughs> uh, millions of people just getting wasted in Amsterdam and I was thinking, Oh, I can't join them <laughs> to be honest. I was like, this is the biggest party ever. Um but and I got and I started running from Dam Square, the centre of Amsterdam and um, actually a few people came and meet me at the start and my friend Rona came over and things like that, which was great. And um, set off, and it was only very quickly, within four or five miles, I was on the Amstel River, completely silent, on my own, just me and the geese and the ducks. And, and I thought, wow, that's when it hit me. I thought, wow, like, this is it, you know, because the hardest bit was just all the prep, all the work. Um, all that was just, like, really tedious at times, to be honest. Enjoyable, but at the same time, like, oh, is this ever going to come? And that's when I thought, you're on it, this is it, you know. And then the pressure started to hit a bit, because mm-hmm. thinking, God, hang on a minute, actually you've said you're going to do this, now you, it's all down to you now. Nobody can help you, really, you know. Hmm. Um, but I managed to kind of push that to the back of my mind. Um, the, the main, one of the main things I was really concerned, um, it was really early on, and we were staying, the man who'd written the route, he's got some friends in a place called Schoenhoven, and we'd stayed with him two nights had offered us for free accommodation. I'm going to take everything I can get, because we didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> and... Um, I was staying with him and I remember coming to his house after about marathon three or four and I was in agony, like my, my knees were killing me. I'd never known pain like this from any of my training and the tendon at the front of your foot here which kind of comes out when you lift your foot was all swollen up and um, I finished the fourth marathon with one shoe and just hobbling along the road. Got to my 18 and I was like, I was lost as well and I was like, radioed Ferlif and I was like, 
I cannot, it was freezing cold as well. I don't know why it was so cold in May, but it was freezing. Probably just going into shock because I stopped running. And I was like, oh. I didn't think about stopping, but I thought, this is going to be hellish if it's like this for the next 50 days. Mm. Um, and actually the people we were staying with, they were lovely, but the lady, the, the, the wife of the man we were staying with was like, I knew you'd never do this. It's too far. Your knees won't hold out. <laughs> and I was like, I kind of, you know, I kind of Dutch have got, maybe got certain um, character, you know, their, their tone might not be, yeah. but I'm picking up a bit of negativity here. <laughs> um, but it was nice to stay with them, but um, I didn't want, and this is just stupid, and it's probably just part of the way of my makeup, but, you know, the way I am, but um, I was like, you need to go and see a physio. This is ridiculous. And I was like, I am not, because I was like, this is the, if I go and see a physio, we've failed. This is a failure. And she was like, are you absolutely insane? Like, this is like day four, and you're in agony. Um, and I said, as you know, it's funny, because, how do I say this without upsetting people? <laughs> um, the people that were closest to me when I was planning this and doing it, mm-hmm weren't as supportive or interested. Interesting. I don't know what that was. We were all just kind of young men as well. We were only 26 years old or something. But it was loads of support I got was from strangers. I got lots of support. people supporting me. But I was quite surprised. And the amount of people that supported me that were complete strangers. And I'll tell you an example was the lady that translated all the route into English, mm-hmm. which was not an easy thing for her to do. Um, she'd wanted to meet me. Um, she met me on when I finished the first math in a place called Warden. And um, she came to meet me, and her name was Judith. She was great. And she was like, oh, it's really cool what you're doing. And I happened to text her and said, like, I'm in a bad way. My wife said that I need to speak to someone about this. And she said, my friend's a physio. Let's see what I can do. She made a call. He said, he'll see me. He'll not charge me. You know, it was all these little things. Mm-hmm. And it was in Eindhoven. And, you know, Philip drove me to there. We, we went to see him. And, I, I mean, I... I was like, what can you do for me? There's nothing you can do. It's just a strain. It's just over. It's just overuse. And he used this thing called kinesio tape. And it's it was relatively new then. But oh, if you look yeah. at the athletes or footballers, they've got the, on, the, the, the luminous pink and blue tape all over their legs. Mm-hmm. It was that. And he said, uh, let me look at this. And he put tape all over me. And I kind of left his office thinking, that was a waste of time, you know. He's just put cell tape all over my legs. <laughs> um, and uh, I left. And I'm not even kidding to say that about... And the first half marathon, I felt like I was getting warmed up, getting loosened up. And the, the pain never came back after that. It never came back. Really? And I phoned them, you know, I phoned them maybe like 25 days later. And I was, I remember I was lying, I'd finished like a marathon, whatever it was. And I was in this, in the rare opportunity, I had a nice hotel and I had a pool. And I, was, I had a freezing cold can of juice. And I phoned them, I was like, oh, I just want to say, like, literally saved this entire trip. You know, you have, you know, like, oh, you so much. Um, and he was obviously, because he was a runner himself, so he understood. Um, that was probably the, the lowest point. Mm-hmm. And I, I have memories um, about my, maybe week three, so when it was like 14, 15, you feel like, God, I've still got so long to go. Like, I am nowhere near, you know, I haven't even touched this here. <laughs> and I'm, I'm shattered. And I remember a day, my friend Matt that had done the cycle with me, he came out for a week, which is great, because he been on that trip with me and he knew how I kind of the kind of zone I went into and I was doing these things and um, the, the place we were staying I was in an attic like a B&B I was in an attic roof and they had one of those blackout blinds and if you could go like that I couldn't see your hand hmm. in front of your face mm-hmm. and I woke up in the morning and I was like the coziest bed and it was bucking with rain and I was thinking <laughs> I just remember thinking I can't do this today I just first day I just thought oh, I don't know if I can do this 
and I've got to do it over and over and over and over. And and I thought to myself that, you know, I know I'm going to get myself out of bed because of the reasons of, you know, the charity, all that stuff. But I did kind of doubt for the first time that if it starts to get gradually, if every day I wake up and it starts to get gradually harder and harder, mm-hmm. there might be a day that I just go, I don't know if I can do this. It's just too big a task. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so it did really play on my mind. Um, but I had a little technique. I had a little flip cam that I used to carry, mainly just for my own benefit. I just wanted to keep a, a record of it all. And um, I got lots of little videos and snippets and things that I thought were interesting. Um, but I made sure that I'd made a film in the morning when I woke up, just a short video diary thing. I made sure I did one at the halfway mark of the, ra- the run that day, and I made sure I did one at the end. And then um, it was it was really interesting to watch because when I used to wake up in the morning, every video went the same way. The morning one was like, ah, oh, I cannot do this. <laughs> I'm just so tired. I'm not getting enough sleep. I'm not up to this. And then the halfway one was just like, oh, I'm feeling all right. And at the end of it, it was always like, another one done, woohoo, kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when I'd feel up in the, I'd go, that was the technique. And then I'd, you know, when I'd wake up in the morning, I'd watch the end of the day, the day before, and I'd be like, get yourself out because you know you're going to feel like that in five, six hours. Um, that was it. And that wasn't a plan. It was just something that happened, you know, developed over the course of it. Yeah, yeah. What's it like now looking back on that experience? Um, I feel really lucky. Mm-hmm. Really, the overriding thing is absolutely privileged to be able to do it. And I know some people look at that and go, I wouldn't, can't think about anything worse. And that's fine because everybody has what they're interested in. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, that's what I wanted to do. Um, but, you know, the people I was doing it for, as in the people that came to Edinburgh Headway Group, a lot of them don't have a choice. They can't walk. They can't run. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they can't even write their own name. Um, so for me to complain about having to do some runs, you know, it just seems trivial. Um, so the main thing is, I feel proud, obviously. Um, but I think the main thing is um, really lucky. You know, really lucky to have done it. Yeah. <laughs> How do you think your life might be different now had you never found running? Um, I, I mean, I'd changed already. I mean, this wasn't the thing that said that suddenly changed me, but I wouldn't have the career that I have without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I, had, I felt differently about how I viewed life and things like that, but I still didn't really know what, what I wanted to do. And I think through the process of preparing for this, planning for it, um, and you know, finishing it and coming home, um, and going back to the job, which I, I had a supportive company, the, my colleagues were great, but the job was just, for me, it wasn't something I was engaged with at all, mm-hmm. um, which is just fine. Um, but when I when I came back, I, um, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to do, I wanted to do good in the world. <laughs> I couldn't make a career running because I'm not Mo Farah, um, <laughs> you know. Um, so I thought, well, you can't. And a plush, there was a for a while, I thought I'll just keep doing these challenges, and then a colleague said to me. Yeah, but when are you actually going to do something for yourself? You know, because you're not going to get paid for this. And at the end of the day, you've got to make a living and you've got to do something every day that you're happy and you enjoy because mm-hmm. what's the point otherwise? Hmm. Um, and that's when I obviously um, applied for the job at Mag- Maggie's, which is where I work now. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that's been life-changing. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. It's the best job in the world. Honestly, it is. It's the best... Um, but with the best, most dedicated people, I meet the most incredible people in the centre. Incredible for all sorts of reasons. You know, some are brave, some are 
modest, some are just remarkable. Um, it's a hard job, it's a stressful job. But I think, you know, we spoke before we started the camera that what's the point? Otherwise, if it's not difficult or challenging, there's no point, mm -hmm. you know, because then there's no sense of accomplishment or achievement. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, hmm. it's funny, when I, to be cheesy, and everybody has a quote, and uh, mine's is, um, I can't even remember, mine's gone blank, who was it said it now, but um, it was, unless you try to do something beyond what you've already mastered, you will never grow. It's Ralph Waldo Emerson. Absolutely. I, I, I knew this quote was coming. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a good quote. I, <laughs> and it's interesting, even now, about, right, what am I doing right now? And that includes work, you oh. know, personal life. What am I doing right now? If I feel like I would, I don't want life to become like a recipe. Oh, I just know what happens. You know, it's just a recipe. Hmm. I just get on it. I do it every day. And if I felt like well, I'd always have to say, right, what am I going to do next? You know, something to keep you in that kind of comfort zone and keep you feeling like on it and creative and uh, ambitious as well. And that's the other thing. It made me feel. I mean, I'm, I was like, I, I hate when people say you can do anything because you can do anything if your circumstances are right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you've got the desire, but it was the ambition. You know, Firth always says to me that. Um, nothing phases you. I was like that probably because of what I've done. Yeah, and you know, I I believe that if you want to do anything career-wise, you know, you're a best psychologist. I'll just go and train to be a psychologist. I don't think you have to be a certain type of individual to do anything in this life. I just think that you have to have the desire to do it. Anyway, that's <laughs> that's super. Oh, no, it's great. It's really it's really inspirational. I love that. Um, I hadn't actually heard of Maggie Centres uh, mm. um, until obviously I started researching this. What um, what is the work that they do, and what does your current role entail? So Maggie's is um, it's the only organisation that supports anyone affected by cancer. So that includes the person who has cancer, their friends and their family. Um, there's lots of charities that do support for people with cancer, all different all different kind of things. But Maggie's is the only charity that's got purpose built centres on hospital NHS grounds. Mm. which are there, and they support anyone with any of the 300 types of cancer at any stage, you know, people in remission, people have lost loved ones. Um, there's, um, they actually started in Edinburgh, Maggie's. So Maggie was from the oh, Fisher, yeah. oh, okay. and she was diagnosed with cancer in the West in general, and um, her experience wasn't the greatest of that. Mm. She was in a hospital corridor moments later and thought, did I just go home? I had to tell my children and my husband this news. Mm. And um, she thought we must be able to do better than this. Um, and one day she was getting a treatment at the Western General Hospital and she looked out at this old stable block and said, can we not do something with that space? And actually, I, I do believe in fate sometimes, but um, her husband was a guy called Charles Jenks, who's a very well-known landscape uh, gardener, designer, um, and he was friends with a guy called Richard Murphy, so well-known Edinburgh architect. Who read, Richard would have been probably not long out of architecture school then, 1980, early 90s. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I'm looking for a project. And he came on board and they all collaborated and they designed this beautiful centre down at the Western General. Yeah. Um, Maggie died in 1995, okay. uh, opened in 1996, and um, they named it Maggie after her. Um, but the amazing thing about it is that um, all the centres are right next to oncology units or hematology units on the, the hospital ground because it's meant to be easy for people just to pop over. Mm -hmm. um, but Maggie's never approaches an NHS site to be on there. We're always invited. And in the um, 21 years that Maggie's has been going, so it's 21 this year, um, there's 17 centres open and an R4 in development. Wow. So it's really amazing what a legacy that Maggie's left. Yeah. Um, I think everybody wants to kind of think they've left some kind of legacy in what she has, really. So, mm. yeah, mm -hmm. it's an amazing place. Yeah. 
One of the quotes that you said, um, I love a challenge, charity, and helping people to achieve their ambitions. Why is that? Where do you think that comes from? Um, maybe because... It's a good question. Um, maybe just because... I'll go get really... So, I have a real problem with... You wonder where I'm going with this, but I have a real problem with the education system. Okay. I think that assumptions are made about children because they're not um, academic, or they're not deemed to be. Mm-hmm. So you're not good at maths and English and uh, languages and things like that. You might be good at music, but you never get a career doing that. So there's <laughs> assumptions made about people. Because yeah. how many times are you told that in school, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, I want to be a painter, you never make money doing that. Stick to this. Mm. Um, I think that's an awful way to do things because everybody's different. They've all got different skills and interests. Um, so I think, for me, I felt growing up that Nobody listened to me. Nobody helped to nurture what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when I when I the thing I get from working at Maggie's is that um, you meet vulnerable people all the time. Mm-hmm. You meet the most amazing people all the time. Um, but I get to Maggie's has a fundraising approach which is unique in charities, as far as I can see, is that we don't blanket mail random people. We don't cold call. We don't chug in the street. We don't harass people. We have a very much a our fundraising approach mirrors the support people get in the centre. So that is tailored to the individual, what they want. And it's all about relationships, just like what people, just like what the support in our centres is all about. It's about relationships one-to-one or with you know, friends, family. Mm-hmm. And um, I get enormous satisfaction for able to, to meet people. I mean, a week, a week for me now is just, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen next week. You know, I don't know who I'm going to meet. You know, one minute I'm doing a bucket collection, the next minute I'm speaking to someone who can give us a six-figure donation potentially. You know what I mean? And yeah. I love that. Uh-huh. But nothing. But if it's that person that can give you that enormous gift or that transformational gift, or it's someone that can give you five pounds, there's no difference for me. You know, the approach mm-hmm. and the relationship with them, they're just all people. Um, so I think part of that stems from me just, you know, didn't feel didn't feel like I was encouraged when I was young, and I, and I feel like um, I want to be able to help people to to you know reach their capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember actually going down to to speak at an event in, in Norwich. And it was vulnerable children, um, you know, fossil and, and care homes, that kind of thing. And um, I was telling them all about, you know, things that I'd done and my my view on life and what they can achieve. And I was speaking to this guy called John afterwards, and he says, you know, Matt, that from most of these kids, no deal ever spoken to them like that in their lives. Hmm. You know, they just be they just be talked down to. No deal be positive. There's no positive role model in their life, and that I find crazy. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. I found a a Nicorette commercial Mm. that you did, which I think it appears to be done almost like retrospectively. Um, When was that filmed and how did that get commissioned? It was 2015, in August 2015. Okay, right. Yeah, so I got um, a call, an email actually from an agency who represented Nicorette saying that they wanted to make a film. And I have to admit to being a bit torn about it. To be honest, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I still do feel torn about it. To be honest, um, <laughs> because they, they paid me for it. I'm not. I'm not ashamed to admit that. Okay. I've got to help me to buy my house. You know, that sounds like they gave me a fortune, but they didn't. <laughs> but it was enough to make us, you know, put the offer in that we could do to get the house, which was a, you know, a little bit extra. Uh-huh. Um, so when I look like that, you know, that's absolutely fine. Um, but yeah, they got in touch and said they wanted to make a film. I did swear at it, especially given what. You know where I work. 
because I didn't want my work to be associated with that because I didn't want to think that magazine endorses Nicorette. No, it doesn't. Um, but I thought, you know, it, I think, um, yeah, they're trying to make money in Nicorette, but they do help people, you know. Yeah. Actually, the long and short of it is, yes, they're trying to make money. I don't know if their stuff works, to be honest. As the, I mean, at the end of the video, it says Mark Cooper does not endorse Nicorette products, and I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, if what they tell me, you know, they've got these stats and they're, they're quite, they seem pretty good, um, it can only be a good thing, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the actual, what they've made, the, mm. the short film is phenomenal. Mm, mm. Um, it's incredibly powerful. But I just wasn't sure on your stance, RE, kind of, you know, mm. um, Nicorette as an organisation. But as you say, mm. they are they are helping people stop mm. smoking. Yeah. Which isn't altogether a bad thing. No, that's the thing. And <laughs> actually, and just because I managed to do it cold turkey, so to speak, yeah. doesn't mean that, you know, some people may not be able to do it that way. Exactly. And they might need a bit of help. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's interesting because you get Nicorette out of your doctor, so it can't be that bad. They okay. give you a prescription for it if you want it. Yeah. You know, so if they're being dosed by GPs, then it can't be that bad. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was fortunate that the two guys that I hooked up with um, were just brilliant. You know, the one guy from Germany and one guy from England, Tom. Um, the Common Future was their, their company, and they were the directors and they created the storyboards and the idea. Mm-hmm. And they pitched it to me, and actually, I just thought, actually, these guys are, they've got it nailed on because they get it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was really fortunate to work with two great directors as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What advice would you give to anyone that's looking to break a habit, be it smoking, drinking, anything? Oh, um, <laughs> I think, um, I mean, I said I tried three times before to stop. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. Just keep trying. Like mm. anything in life, you know what I mean? Just keep trying. And um, don't get too downhearted and hard on yourself, yeah? You know what I mean? If it's smoking, for example, if you stop, if you give a relapse of a couple of cigarettes, or if it's people that are on a diet, you know, how many yeah. times have you seen people that, you know, I've done it myself, you know, you're on a diet, you have something to eat, and then you just low off the rails for three weeks. <laughs> oh, God, I shouldn't have had that first supper. And then you just eat crap for three weeks. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, give yourself a break and just get back on track. Um, I think that'd be the main thing, and um, and I think whatever it is, I mean, do it for the right reasons. Just mm-hmm. do it for yourself. Um, have you, have you, well, actually, do it for yourself because that's what I did it for. But um, for example, I, I know a guy called William who's had a problem with drink, and his he's clean now, stopped now, but his source of um, motivation was his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so if I take the inspiration from whatever you can get, <laughs> really. Nice. Yeah. Good stuff. Are you still running at the moment? Yeah. Yeah? How yeah. much do you think you're running these days? Um, so, 2010, running all the time, did the marathons, came back. 2011, I discovered ultra marathon running, um, which seems to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is, I love it, but there's a lot of the purists that go, get out of our race. You know, I mean, the guys that have been involved when there was like 20 people at a race, now there's like 400 and they're like, they've got, people have got headphones in, they're like, get your headphones out. I'm like, what is this? Kind of some kind of weird, weird club that you've got. You know what I mean? It's like a yeah. bit of a sort of... Uh, anyway, yeah, cult, yeah. Um, so, uh, 2011, d- discovered ultramarathon running. Actually had my first DNF, so did not finish my first mm-hmm. race in 2011, the West Island Way race. Um, 95 miles it is, Oof. and I just wasn't ready for it. I kind of 
was a bit arrogant to be honest. I kind of took it for granted, and you've got to apply an application. I was like, oh, I did fifty marathons. I'll be able to do this no bother. Uh-huh. I'd never done any proper off road running. I'd never been on the West Highway. Way. I was thinking to myself, oh, I can, I can do, I could, do, I did a fifty mile run in eight hours. I'll do this in about sixteen hours. And uh, I pulled out about twenty five miles in, and I just was like, it was. I felt physically fine, uh-huh. but I was just. Um, Two things really. I felt I, I couldn't get my head around that I had stall this distance to run. And the other one was I, I wasn't doing it for the right reasons. I was doing it so I could post it on social media. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I was thinking, and I was thinking when it go, and when the going got tough, I thought that's nah. I'm doing it. It's easy to give that up because I've I'm not doing it for the right reasons. I don't really want this. And so that that kind of I learned a lot from that actually, which also is an important thing to learn from what you don't achieve. But mm-hmm. um. And so I ran kind of nowhere near what I was doing. I still kept running and doing races, but not in a serious way, just a kind of enjoyment way. And then last year, finished the West Ham race. Did you? Yeah. Oh, really? So 2012, I signed up again after I failed to finish. Just bought a new house, started the job at Maggie's on the Monday and thought there's no way I can run 95 miles and start a job on Monday. Yeah. So I pulled out. 2013, I didn't sign up. 2014, I pulled out um, before it started. Um I think you've got to apply, so I didn't get into it. Fifteen, twenty, sixteen. I got in. I trained, and I had a hellish time. The hardest, probably, in fact, the hardest, hardest race I've done. Harder than fifty marathons. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. And there's guys out there that do that race that go, "This is easy. It's an easy race." They're kidding. They are absolute liars, because hardest in the sense that doing a marathon a day was really hard, but. It's over in four, three, four hours. Mm-hmm. But this was, um, I got to mile 70 and I'd done it 17 miles for 70 miles, 25 miles to go. And it took me 12 hours to do the last 25 miles. I just walked like a death march. And my feet, I had no skin left on you know, my feet at all. Jeez. It's not an exaggeration. And every step was just like, this is absolute agony. And those, those last 25 miles, I mean, I think it started at one in the, I mean, there's guys doing 35 hours, but I started at one in the morning, the race starts. And that was on the Saturday, so one in the morning, and I finished it. So I went all the way through that day, half past six on the Sunday morning. It was a long shift, 29 and a half hours. Seriously? Um, wow. And it was mainly just, uh, but again, um, the sense of achievement was just, I don't know if it was more than the marathons, to be honest. I don't know. There was something about failing to do it and then coming back and doing it. Yes. It was really satisfying. Oh. Really oh, satisfying, really. actually. Um. And then this year, I set a chance to run 10 races for Maggie's this year because I'm 10 years smoke-free this year. So I've done seven. Uh, and what's been really good is I've, I've discovered that, and I quote a lot of I'm not setting challenges, I'm just existing. And I firmly believe that. And so for me, just I like running, but I don't think I'll ever be someone who can just run just because, oh, I like this, this is great. It's not enough of a motivator for me, so I have to have something there that's like, I need to go and do this otherwise. And the thing this year was set myself to do 10 races for Maggie's for the 10, 10 years and raise some money for them. And um, I took it seriously, really seriously, because I knew I had to do it. And I was raising money for charity and things like that. And um, so in the seven races I've done this year, I've set five personal bests. And wow. I've not set personal bests in these distances for seven years. So it's been really good to know that, oh, actually, I can get this back. I can actually push. And it's been hard work. But it's been really, really satisfying. And I've enjoyed all of it now. That's the difference, you know. I've yeah. really enjoyed it. Um, 
I don't know if I'll do the rest of that race again, but we'll see. <laughs> I read about another challenge that you'd done, which was uh, um, 24 hours on a treadmill. Yeah. That you yeah. did uh, like 129.2 miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was stupid. The... <laughs> that was bad. Yeah. It was in the current thing club in Glasgow, so in the bar. So it's people, it's 24 hour bar. So it's just people just steaming all, all around you, just singing, I love you, and all this stuff. And, and I was like, we're raising money in the bar. So I was like, what better way to do it? Let's just set up in the busiest area of the bar. I just run on the thing, give me headphones and a TV, and I put 24 on Jack Bauer. I thought, I could just watch that for 24 hours, whole series. And people would just go check for notes in the bucket and all this stuff. And uh, yeah, that wasn't good. That wasn't good. I mean, and this is another thing that is so stupid. I look back on these things and you know, that thing I said to you about not being prepared, this was a bad thing not to be prepared because I, and people were like, how did you not get this? But not, I don't run on treadmills at all. So I've no concept of what it feels like on a treadmill, the speed and things. And um, I borrowed the, the treadmill from someone. And the last thing I said to him was, what's the treadmill set to? And he said, I said, what do you mean? I was like, was it miles per hour, kilometers per hour? And he said, oh, I think it's kilometers per hour. So I just put it to 10. <laughs> and I was running along. And two hours in, I was like, I am absolutely shattered. And I came off and I went downstairs to this toilet. And I was sitting on the toilet. And I was like, my head was spinning everything. I thought, for 22 hours to do this. 22 hours to go. I've only done 20 kilometers. Went back upstairs. Did an, did an hour, um, like six miles. So it was 26 kilometers. But it turned out it was in miles per hour. <laughs> Crazy. Oh, so I thought that I was doing 10 kilometers an hour. I was doing 10 miles an hour. So six minute miles. So, but do you know what's interesting? Because I was on the floor feeling, oh my God, I feel dreadful, I feel dreadful. And then when Brim was like, I've just called Neil and he's looked into it all and everything and it's miles per hour. Because I wondered why after about five minutes, 10 minutes of running on it, I was like, I, I am absolutely shattered, breathing heavy. Mm-hmm. 10 kilometers an hour for me at that point was like easy pace. And, uh, but I went from there to, this is brilliant. I've actually managed to bag like a marathon and like, you know, just over yeah. three hours. Yeah. Um, so so the, I was trying to break the world record, 161 miles. And my heart hurts, I knew I wouldn't do it. But it was a good spin to try and... I thought, I'll give it a go. But realistically, if I can do the 24 hours, it'd be great, and we'll raise some money. Yeah. But, but I was told that, well, if you want to get coverage for the charity, you better say it's a world record attempt. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say that, so we said it was a world record attempt. Um, and yeah. but 80, So I'd been 80 miles in 12 hours. And... Um, and I knew I was never going to negatives, but I knew I was never going to do 81 miles in the last 12 hours. And I managed like 52, whatever it was, whatever you said. Okay. Um, so yeah, that was, that was, uh, it was not good. Not it was not, no, never again, no, <laughs> never again. No. I also read that um, even in spite of like all the achievements you've had, all the great things you've done, your first ever 10k race still stands out as the one that was like, you yeah. get a proudest moment. Is that yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people think that's that'd be mad, but they don't know where I was at that point. And um, that thing about not being phased now is, if I, I sign up for races without even giving it a second thought, no matter how long it is or what it is or where it is, because I know I'll finish it. You know what I mean? Because I know I'll just go, I'll, I'll find a way to finish it, and if I don't finish it, so what? But that race, for me, there was a lot riding on that. I didn't realise at the time. But, um, you know, the fact that I managed to exceed my own expectations and I said everybody else's, um, it was the first time I'd, I'd achieved that in my entire life, to be honest. Um, 
and after that, I just thought, yeah, it probably is the proudest moment, actually. It really is. Yeah. It really is, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I suppose it's like the sort of snowball effect. Yeah. Had you not had the success or had it not gone as well, yeah. you probably wouldn't have ended up doing everything that you've subsequently done, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, that's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. It would have, you know, they probably would have set me back, and who knows, I could have been, could have started smoking again. I don't absolutely. Know, you know, if you yeah. hadn't seen that progression, you know, I could have went, oh, what a bloody waste of time this is. You know? Totally. Yeah. And in a way, that, that addiction of smoking kind of got replaced by running. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. It did. It did, you know? <laughs> yeah. It really did. Um, healthier addiction to have. Although everybody I tell, everybody I say, oh, you run, oh, it's bad for your knees, that. I'm like, it's so sitting on the couch, mate. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm like, sitting on the couch six days a week isn't a good either, though. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just yeah. great, great American runner called Dean Carnazes. I know he's, who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and he's fantastic. And he, I can't remember his quote, but he was like, um, he, he said when he gets to the end of his life, he wants to get to the end battered and bruised and cut up and going, wow, what a ride. And I, I want to do that as well. Yeah. You know, whenever that is, I want to do that as well. I want to go, wow. You'll never do anything you want to do because life's too short for that. But when mm-hmm. I get there, I want to go, wow, I've made a difference. And I've lived a life as full as I can. So, yeah. Love it. Yeah. Love it. It's been brilliant hearing about, um, well, geez, your life, your running, um, your achievements. It's, it's been absolutely phenomenal. At this stage, I'd like to probably go a little bit deeper um, and cover some of the more, I suppose, bigger kind of philosophical topics. The first of which is purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of your own life, what do you feel is your own life purpose? Um, well, my wife's 22 weeks pregnant, <laughs> so I guess it's going to be being the best dad I can, um, which I'm so excited about. Um, I've been ready for years. Um, being the best husband I can, um, doing as well with my career as I can, really really doing the best I can at everything that I put my mind to. Hmm. That's it. Um, and, and, it's, and if I don't feel like... If I'm doing something, I think, for example, if my work ever became like that recipe I talked about, I would do something else because I can't, I can't, I can't risk going back to that way I was before of just not feeling like I'm super excited about every day. Yeah. Um, and at the moment, I am. So, <laughs> you spoke earlier about um, Maggie's incredible legacy. What would you like your own legacy to be? Um. Partly, part of it on my deathbed to go, had a great time, right? I did everything, mm. you know, I did everything that I could for the time I had. Um, you know, I don't care so much what people think of me, to be honest, about our people. Um, it's a good way to be. Yeah, I don't really care about any of that. Um, so I don't care if people think he was a good guy. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, <laughs> yeah. I just don't, you know? Um, I don't really think I'm a horrible guy. No, no. But um, <laughs> it's not something that's on my mind. But um, I think mainly just that to be um, everything I did, I gave it 100%. Um, yeah, that's really it. What are you most grateful for in life? Um, probably would be... That's a good question. You don't really think about that so much. The easy cop-out question would be just grateful to be healthy and alive, but 
Um, that goes without saying. Do you know what I mean? But because <laughs> who isn't? Um, grateful. I think this might be what people might expect to hear, but I wouldn't say you know it was awful what happened to me when I was young, with my mum. Mum, but it was awful. But it's given me a perspective on life, and a and a real value for. And actually, my career's done this as well. Where I work, but giving me a real value for little things mm-hmm. and everyday things, and um, you know, respect for people. Um, yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. Um, how how something like that happening so early in your life would shape you and mm. the way that you see things. Mm. So yeah, definitely. How do you define success? It's not money anyway, put it that way. <laughs> get that out of the way right now. Um, it's definitely not money or what school you went to or what car you drive or where you live. <laughs> um, I think it's just if you're happy, you know? I think it really is. I don't mean like, hey, I love everything, but just if you can find things in your life which make you happy and content. For me, that could be sitting in my conservatory having an espresso coffee in the morning. I'm sorry, I'm saying too many brands here, but you know, that's my brand of coffee. <laughs> you know? And for me, like, and again, that's like finding joy in these little things. You know, some of my favorite things to do have a coffee in the morning, espresso coffee. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's just if you're happy and can find, can find everyday contentness. Because uh-huh. um, cause it's so hard these days to do that, you know, because there's, there's just so many distractions. There's phones, there's, there's catch-up TV, there's, you know, have to be doing stuff all the time. Yeah. And sometimes I think if you can stop all that, clear your mind and don't feel too terrified to be in your own head for a little bit, which can be quite intimidating. Um, <laughs> I, I think, um, yeah, that inner kind of, I feel quite content. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Hmm. Who or what inspires you? Oh, lots of people, lots of things. Um, I, I mean, lots of people and lots of things for different reasons. Um, people I meet at work, again, I touched on error for their some for their bravery, some for their tenderness, some for their openness. Some are so honest, some for their empathy for others. Um, some of the people that I work with, I mean, they're so dedicated. They they have their own things going on, but they still support people with things you couldn't even imagine. I've heard things in there that I just can't even comprehend having to go through. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of something more to say, but I guess that's it. Lots mm-hmm. of different things. No one thing, mm-hmm. you know, not one thing at all. Hmm. You, you spoke a couple of times about being able to look back on your life and say, wow, what a ride, that was incredible. What are some of the big kind of bucket list goals that you still want to tick off in order to feel like that? Um, yeah, it's, um, run around the world's probably off the cars now. I'm serious, yeah. That was one of my things. Seriously? There's a great woman called Rosie Swill Pope. She ran around the world. She lost her husband. Oof. She was a pensioner and she ran around the world. She's got a great book um, and she took her five years. Um, it was incredible. Um, I don't think I'm going to get five years away from my family yeah. <laughs> on my job. Uh, it's probably a stretch too far. Um, I'm, there's lots of things I still want to do. Um, 
that is to raise a, raise a, a family. Probably it's at the forefront of my mind at the moment, to be yeah. honest. That is, that you know, I said that my thoughts were dominated of how good will be to Barcelona. At the moment, is how good will it be with my son or daughter's here. Um, so that's really at the forefront of my mind at the moment. Raise a good family. Um, yeah, career-wise, I'm, I'm quite relaxed about it. You know, I think it is just that. Career-wise, it's more just um, go with the flow a bit. And um, if I feel like I want to do something different, either at Maggie's or somewhere else, then I'll do it. I'll do it, yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? My mum said, be a leader, not a follower. Um, I don't know if I've managed to do that. Um, I think it's good to be a bit of both at times. So <laughs> maybe she was wrong with that one. Um, best bit of advice... This probably says that I'm not good at taking advice on board, that I can't come up with anything, but... <laughs> best piece of advice? I don't know if it's one piece of advice. It's more... I don't know how I would say it. I don't know if it's like, nobody said one nugget to me that's maybe think, wow, what a great bit of advice. Mm-hmm. I think it would be more... The best thing that I've got from our people would be more observing some people that and seeing how they act and behave and respect people and thinking what I'm getting from them just from being around these really positive people I'm getting so much from that so it's not so much advice as in like you know yes. don't smoke cigarettes it's, <laughs> yeah. it's more um, learning from other people that yeah. kind of side it's sort of, sort of advice in a way yeah definitely definitely mm. if you had the opportunity to speak to your 20 year old self what would you say <laughs> uh, oh goodness I didn't read the questions you see you said over <laughs> really caught me off. that makes it better in a way I wouldn't say it. I don't know if I'd give him any, I don't think I would give him any advice I would just say crack on the way you are because I had a great time when I was 20 years old actually um, and that going through all that stuff you know I mean I was me and my friends were just were quite wild and um, <laughs> You know, and I, I think you've got to do that as well yeah. when you're young. Um, and that's going to shape who I am as well now as well. So I don't think I would give him any huge things to say and to change this. I think I'd tell him to start smoking. <laughs> I would definitely tell him to start smoking um, earlier than, than he did. Um, and do you know, actually, maybe now, oh God, I don't know where that came from, but maybe now that. I think um, I've got quite a small family. So there's my brother, his wife, and my wife now, obviously, and her in-laws. But my immediate family is me, my dad, my brother, my aunt. Um, we lost touch with a lot of family. My mum passed away. And um, I would like to have spent more time with... They're still alive, my aunt, my brother, my dad. But I'd like to have spent more time with them when we were younger, mm-hmm. I think. Um and I try to do as much as I know as I can. Um, but you kind of, kind of feel like that, you know, 20, 20 years old, that's 14 years ago. Uh, and now obviously, not my dad wasn't pleased with me, but he's not able to do the same things that he once, to, once could. So, mm-hmm. um, so there's lots of things I probably said, spend more time, you know, with my family. Um, yeah. I try and make up for that now, but um, good life lesson for becoming a dad. So. Definitely. Yeah. Hmm. 
If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? Oh, um, oh, this is really interesting. Because <laughs> there's so many quest answers that come straight to my head. I'm like, I can't say that. It's too cliche. I wish you just say what came straight in my head. But it's basically to, I wish everybody would just take a chill and just actually get a grip, to be honest. Like, just stop yeah. being so self-absorbed. I was in London on Monday. Unbelievable. I'm not just saying it's people in London, there's people everywhere. But I'm like, oh, just, we're all human beings, right? We're all just trying to get on. Yeah. Everybody wants the same thing they want, you know, they want and somewhere to live, they want a roof over their head, want their family to be all right, want their friends, and they just all want the same thing. Just stop, um, you know, fanning around. Yeah. Like, and just, <laughs> especially with the world that is at the moment, I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, it's not, it'll never go away. You can't solve anything. The world's, the whole world history has been war, 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 war. My dad says we're naturally violent, and I'm starting to believe there's an element to that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think, yeah, just for everybody just to respect each other more, a little bit more. They're not getting all zen about it and like, you know, <gasps> Buddhist monks about it, but just like, just to kind of be a bit kinder to each other. And actually as well, um, if I could change one thing, people to be a bit kinder themselves as well. Mm. You know, so harsh, mm -hmm. so much pressure on people these days, especially young people. Um, and a lot of that comes from things like social media and peer-to-peer -peer pressure. And mm -hmm. for me, it was who had the latest, like, Teddy Smith jumper going to school. We didn't have social media and all that stuff, you know, mobiles. Yeah, um, yeah. So I can only imagine <laughs> how hard it must be now yeah. growing up. Um so yeah, yeah, that'd be it. Good answer. I actually half expected you to say something about education. Mm. <laughs> mm. Add that to the list. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> add that to the list, actually. Yeah, education. Yeah, I would. There's a great talk by a guy called Sir Ken Robinson. Yeah, TED Talk. It's yeah, fantastic. It is, isn't and it? I actually just thought every person who's senior in education should watch that. Yeah. And just um, you know, I remember watching that and thinking that's exactly how I felt. <laughs> and that's why it's had so many views and things like that, and it's so powerful. Yeah. Um, and I've I've got like five or six friends that are teachers, and they all go, "Wow, what a talk! It's absolutely right." Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, education important, but um, not the be on end all. You know, obviously, exam days today. I think it is all the results are coming out. Yeah. There'll be a lot of people who are disappointed, but you know, hopefully, um, they realise that you can do great things without having. You know, hires and things like that, or even standard grades. Yeah. You know, so they have the right mindset again. So, yeah. yeah. How do you think you'll raise your own child? Oh, whatever <laughs> <laughs> my wife says. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, do you know what? This is funny. I mean, it's such a slagging for my friends for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I, I watched this video on YouTube and it was a, a guy with his daughter. His daughter was really young, three or four or something. You know, they're in this mirror, you should watch it, it's really cool, it's really cute as well. And he's standing there and he says, repeat after me, and he's like, I am beautiful. And his little girl's like, I am beautiful. It's like, I, you know, I don't know if you've seen it, I've but seen it's, that, it's yeah. amazing. He goes yeah. through all these things, I am not better than anyone else, mm -hmm. and they are not better than me. And it's just instilling those values, you know, mm -hmm. those values that, that, you know, I guess generations gone by, they weren't so aware of that stuff. It's a different generation, different time. Um, drum that into people from the start yeah. um, and try and be as positive a role model as you can, I think. That'll be it. Yeah. <laughs>
Great answer. Mark, I've loved speaking with you. It's been so much thank fun. You. It's been a brilliant interview. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Elliot. It's been great. You're absolutely welcome. And uh, I wish you all the best with uh, fatherhood when it comes. And uh, I'd definitely love to stay in touch. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Cheers. Mark, thanks so much. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Inspired Edinburgh. Please come and find us on social media and leave us a review on iTunes. Many thanks. Thanks.